0: Good morning, everybody. Today, our scripture is Acts 2, verses 44 through 47. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Thank you. All right. Good morning, everybody. Hey, Sean. Is the workday Saturday or Sunday? Saturday. Saturday. That's what I thought. Okay. Kind of sounded like it was Sunday. It's Saturday, just so you know. We had some confusion. We had a mini conference. All right. Is everybody all right? Everybody good? Okay. Great. I don't know. I feel like something happened that I missed. That's fine. You got a culture. Keep it going. Um, uh, okay, so today, you might notice, like, some signs around here. You know how, like, Southern Baptist churches have, like, the flags of the world around the whole thing? Oh, We've got little parts of our neighborhood, but, but this is for a reason. We're not just leaving them up all the time. Uh, it's house church launch Sunday. That's what this is. Um, if you're not part of a house church, I'm talking about house churches this morning. First off, uh, our house, not, not the host, I'll have you in a second, but, uh, house church leaders, how many of you are here? Like, there's, there's four of you. I, I, uh, okay, stand up for me. Make everybody get a good look at you. Okay, so we got a host over here. We got Okay, so some of these are hosts. Raise your hand if you're like the actual leader of, of like, well, you guys are hosts. So we got we got two couples over here. And now, if you're a house church host, stand up too. I want, I want to see all of you. You, um, you, 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 you. Okay, so no, stand up, come on. I know I had you stand up and sit down and stand up and sit down again. I'm just going to do this the whole time. <laughs> so after this service, they're all going to be like under their little sign for their house church um, so that you can meet them, so you can talk to them. Um, today, I'm sort of talking about like Why? Why house churches? Why are we doing this? You can sit down. Sorry. I was just, I could leave you up. Let me just keep going and see what happens. Um, And so today we're talking about like the why of house churches and honestly the why of Sunday mornings and the why of a lot of things. Uh, So let me, let me give you an overview here. I'm going to talk. Okay. So the first thing I'm going to do is paint a picture of, I did this a couple, like three years ago. Paint a picture of what it would have been like in the first century to go to a, a house church gathering. Because this is what the church did. This is all they had. So I'm going to talk about that for a few minutes. I'm going to read a passage from um, a book. I'll get there. Um, And then I want to talk about, like, how we practice what they practice. Like, why we do what we do. And then after that, we're going to talk a little bit about discipleship and a little bit about liturgy. Okay? These things all kind of go together. Um, So I'm going to open us up with a word of prayer. And uh, then we're going to jump into our passage, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. I, uh... I ask that you'd be very present here with us, that you'd make yourself obviously obvious and present, that, uh, that we would be able to spend some time right now putting everything aside, all the stresses, all of the ways that, uh, that, that the world is pushing anxiety upon us, all the ways are trying to make it seem like things are out of our control, out of God's control, out of all. I pray that, that uh, we would be able to sort of pull that all back like a curtain and be here right now with each other. I pray that we would see each other, that we would accept each other right where each other are, where, right where we are each at, um, and that we would come together as we walk towards you and, and your cross-shaped life. And I pray that we would learn to, uh, to get our own selves out of the way. And allow you to lead us. Um, Be with us this morning. Uh, Remind me of the things I've cited this week, and and let me paint a a clear, beautiful picture of what you are doing and have been doing. Thank you, Father, in your name. Amen. Amen. All right, so I want us to start here. Um, So I'm gonna gonna have some pictures of of Pompeii here, because if you, how many of you, have you been to Pompeii? No? No? Oh, we got a couple. Good, not been there yet. Um, I think I'm going there next year for like a study thing. It's like the best preserved Roman city in the ancient world. If you want to know what Rome was like, you kind of look at Pompeii. Um, and so, um, I, I sort of want to like, I have some pictures I want to walk through and talk to as I, as I sort of get into the mind of like a, a first century woman going to church in the, in the Roman Empire. Okay, so I want us to imagine this sort of middle-aged woman. By the way, this this thing I'm going to read here that comes to you from, and I read this before uh, like three years ago, like I said. It comes from a a Scott McKnight book. He was my professor, so I quote him a lot. Um, Scott McKnight book called A Fellowship of Difference. And I I highly recommend this book. I'm probably going to put a copy in the lobby out there in a few weeks as we swap out the uh, the recommended reading section. Um, Did you know we have a recommended reading section in the lobby? You should. It's right around the corner, right over there. Check it out. Um, Okay, so... I sort of want to paint this picture because I feel like a lot of American Christians have no idea what church is actually able to be and become, what the early church was doing, uh, what, what God is capable of doing in a, um, in a difficult situation, a difficult place to live, in a difficult empire. So I want us to imagine this middle-aged woman going to church in the first century, and if, if you were in a major Roman city such as such as Rome or Ephesus or Pompeii um, uh, you 'd kind of you 'd leave your home and you 'd sort of walk in your leather sandals or your, or maybe barefoot through the city on your paved roads and there 'd be water running down the road and you 'd hop across the uh, sort of the, the stones here and you 're traveling and you 're not really telling people where you 're going because what you 're doing is a little bit subversive and it 's frowned upon where you 're going and what you 're going to do um, and so you You enter a house church. When you come to the neighborhood where you're supposed to be, you enter sort of the house uh, where everyone is gathering, and you immediately encounter encounter some church kids, and they're playing outside, and they're running around, um, and you recognize these kids. They're there every week, and they come together. They've built a relationship. They sort of have like this communal situation. Many of them are living together, and you enter this house, and kids are playing hide-and-seek, and and, and there's this this, um, slave who walks up to you and offers you this uh, sort of a spit loaded up with meat, and you kind of take a piece of meat. And then he takes a piece of meat, and they all sit down together, and they eat together, not as separates, but as equals. Um, and as you're, as you're sort of walking down towards the main gathering area, you pass sort of this household shrine to to their former god, Apollo. He was positioned right here. And as you pass by this, you realize it's been removed. It's been desecrated. Um, it. It's obvious that this house is no longer worshiping the local folk gods that the local people are worshiping. Um, and you're still maybe a little uncomfortable with this, but you see it and it means something. And what it basically means is that they've been sort of uh, liberated from these idols. And as you walk through the atrium where the, the evening sun is sort of gently falling, it's a nice time to gather because the sun is streaming directly in in the room, Um you, you enter into this room and people are sitting around in different parts of the, of the room and there's a table set up and there's food and some are lounging on the floor and others are on sofas and, and pillows and there's an elder uh, who we might call a pastor or, pastor or um, a priest. And he's in the corner and he's got a scroll and he's got the scroll open and he's teaching some things, some things to some people who had some questions. And you're walking in and you're kind of observing. You don't really know that many people yet. And you're kind of looking around. It's maybe 30 people in this space. It's kind of a big house. It's owned by a wealthy person in the city of Ephesus um, where Paul's been ministering here. Um, and outside this room... Uh, there is this veranda and there's these low tables that have already been uh, set up and and the food is spread out and there's all kinds of food there. There's wine and pots of water, trays of food, chicken and fish and veggies and some baked bread. Um, And all of the Christians come in and they begin to sit down and gather Around the table, um, and you notice pretty quickly that the people who are sitting in the seats of honor are no longer in this space, sitting in the seats of honor. Instead, they've put other people in the seats of honor. This is a, this here is really hard to see because it's a, it's a, it's a fresco from the mid 200s, from the third century, um, and this is an early church gathering. And right in the center here, we actually have a woman sitting in the center, at the, at the head of the table. The reason the Christians would have painted this this way is to tell a story, to project like, sort of like, this is who we are, this is what we do. So you have a woman in the front over here, you have a, a slave over here, and you have uh, some citizens and some, you have a Roman uh, sort of, a, maybe a consul over here, I forget how these ones are described, but they know the positions of these people. And the Christians depicted a diverse group of people sitting around this table as equals. No space where anyone is lifted up higher than anyone else. And in, and in, and in some instance, if there is a seat that can, is considered higher, they're usually going to put someone lower there to make a statement about who God is, about who, the God that they worship. Amen. So across the room, you sort of observe that this, uh, this slave, instead of serving others, is sitting next to a Roman citizen. Um, And you sit at the table next to a Roman magistrate, and you've not met this guy other than, like, one time you saw him maybe in a legal case that you were a part of, but he doesn't recognize you, and you recognize him, and, like, he's well-known in the town, but you come in and sit next to him, and he turns and smiles at you and shakes your hand and offers you uh, some bread and some meat. Um, And you meet a young Jewish man as well, sitting at the table maybe across from you, who not only follows the Torah, but he passes up on a lot of the food that comes by because he, he eats what he calls kosher. Um... And it's this, the, the gathering is, is, is really surprising, the gathering of people sitting in the room, sitting at the table around them. And the conversation is going really well with others around you when someone, an elder, stands up um, and, and says a prayer to lead the group into the Eucharist. And you look around the table and you notice different people sort of clasping hands together and bowing in prayer. And you see a Roman magistrate clasping the hand of a slave boy. And they, and they hold hands and they close their eyes and they pray together as the elder leads them in the blessing of the meal. And it is clear that whatever, whatever they are outside this space, when they enter into those doors, when they enter into that room and when they pass that desecrated statue of Apollo, uh, they are equals. All of these things are shed as they walk through the door. It's like they experience some sort of uh, metaphorical baptism. When they walk through that room... A Roman consul is no longer a Roman consul. He's a, he's a brother in Christ. And they sit around this room in ways that they could never sit around a table outside of that door. Um, and so you snap off some bread. as It's being passed around. The prayer has been done and... and uh, you hear about the bread, and you hear about the, the, the body from the elder, about wine and blood, and then he passes the bread around the room, and you snap off some of the bread, and you eat it, and you take a deep gulp of wine, not this cheesy little sip. You're going to take a, a hearty gulp of wine, and you're going to smile, and you're going to pass this thing around, because you rarely ever get wine, because you're a poor housewife who lives on the other side of the city, in the poor part of town. And so, you pass them to the magistrate next to you, and the table grows very silent, and your thoughts wander. Um... As to what has happened to you uh, because of what has happened to Jesus. As you observe the people in the room, and as you take the body and the blood of Christ, and as you eat this communion, and you spend time in silence and meditating on the things of Christ, things rise to your head. You no longer carry anxiety about the nations. You recall your liberation as you sit with a few dozen liberated people who also no longer have to have anxieties about the nations around them, um, because they've, they've come to understand that God is already at work amongst them, that God is the ruler of their people, and he's working to free every citizen of every land. And your world has been turned upside down because of the church. You were at the bottom, and now you feel like you're at the top with everybody else. And this is what, this is what happens. When you humble yourself and, and the church lifts up the humbled. And so you have a husband and he tolerates what he calls your superstition. But he's not really that interested in coming along with you and experiencing the church service himself. Your oldest son, you have several children. You have an oldest son who thinks you're pretty stupid for taking part in the Christian gatherings and um, these house churches. Um, and you have a daughter Um, and a younger son who will sometimes come with you because they've made friends at the church with the other children, and they sometimes are intrigued by the things that are happening, and they're excited to get a meal and to meet all these different types of people that they've never been able to be around before. And you hope that one day your husband will join you too in this service, and you've begun to notice the urgency in your prayers for your oldest son, because here's the thing. Your oldest son, as you ponder him, you begin to cry and have anxiety because he's becoming very Roman, He's becoming very much like the world around you. He's becoming very much like the other magistrates that you see that don't attend these services. Um, he is he's becoming far too Roman. And, 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 and you know that Roman ways lead to slavery to sin and grasping for status and uninhibited sexual expression and taking part in all of the ways that, that they worship these pagan gods. And, and you're worried about your son. And so after you take the communion, you sit and you pray for your husband and you pray for your son and you pray for your children, that they would be liberated as well from the empire and all that it pushes down upon them, all of the anxiety that perhaps you and I feel pushed upon us by our empires. Um, and so the elder reports a a sad story. After a few minutes, he starts to talk, and he reports a sad story about this church in Greece, and you didn't really hear which church it is, but you kind of assume it's Corinth because it's not really far from here, and Paul was there recently, Um, and so you hear hear about sort of the church there begins to have services as well in the same way you are, but some of the richer, more wealthy, high-status people are showing up early to the church service and having their meal before all the poorer people and the slaves get there, And this upsets you, because you see the ways of the empire creeping into the church, and it upsets you. Um, And so it seems that they want some of that honor and the camaraderie of the world to somehow be integrated into the church fellowship. But then the elder stands up and makes it very clear that Roman ways stop at the door. That everyone, man, woman, slave and free, Jew and Greek, rich and poor, we are all one in the family of Christ. And as you enter into this space, all of these labels that we use to separate ourselves and define ourselves, they all kind of like pile up at the door as we walk in and we see our brothers and sisters. And this is what they were doing. And so the elder says, um, um, he says this Passover meal cup that he's passing around is a cup of, of thanksgiving. He calls it the Eucharist. And you understand that word, you, means good, and the charis is a gift. It's the good gift that they all share, Um, the equality at the table, and and that by drinking from the cup, that each person is participating in the death of Jesus, the, the Jewish Messiah who can liberate the Romans, and you realize how personal this is for you. And then he says that eating the bread means that you have just taken part in the body that Jesus gave a body made, um, a body that, body that, that, that was born into this world just like yours, but contained like a vessel, this divine substance. That somehow his death liberated you and you believe by taking part in this that you're taking part in the liberation of others. And as you take this communion and you ponder your own liberation, you realize what this is doing for everyone else in the room that you are all liberating each other through the power of Christ, through the presence of the Spirit. And so throughout the evening, the elder has connected the whole of life to the Eucharist because the church begins at the table. The church has always begun at the table, in the house. The church never began as a TED Talk and as a show where everyone is sitting facing one direction. the, the, The church started around a meal, because people needed to eat, and some people had more. And God thought this was enough to paint the picture of what he wants to do in this world. And so, that is the practice of the early church. And so what do we do? Obviously, we don't have this. This is not what we're doing. Um, what we have to do is, as 21st century Americans, we have to contextualize what the Christians were doing. What they were doing worked in their, in their space, where everyone's living in tight quarters and they're walking and the houses are open and they don't have doors on necessarily because it's hot and it's got to breathe. And so you walk around and you can see people gathering in these feasts, in these Christian feasts and these honor feasts, and you see the Christian one is different. But what we do is we have to contextualize what is happening here and find some way to capture the essence of all of that and hear what we're doing. So what we do is this, as Watermark, we've thought deeply about this for years and this thing has evolved over, over, um, I've been here 18 years and this thing has been evolving. And so we have two things that we sort of, we sort of take their early church gathering and we sort of break it into two. One of them, uh, one of these halves is sort of this. It's this Sunday gathering. For lack of a better description, we have split the ancient meal to accommodate today's culture. And that's what we have to do with the gospel. We have to accommodate how people have been formed to the world and start from there. Um, and so this is a gathering that is passed down to us. Christianity is not made it's inherited christianity is passed down we do not sit and rethink it all and remake the religion we we look back on what has happened and we see what happens how things go wrong and we take notes on those things but we keep the tradition going we do not make it it is inherited there's a long line of christians who came before us we come after them we bear their name and the scriptures talk about how they were cheering us on a great cloud of witnesses there with us hoping that we carry on the tradition of the presence of Christ in this place, in this world. And so we keep these practices alive. And so the Sunday gathering is one piece of the rhythm, liturgy of the Christian life. It is where we gather as many as we can physically into one space, as many of our brothers and sisters as possible. And we do, we do several things. We sing, first off, and it's a weird thing to do, but when we sing, we are actually proclaiming things through music that we would never say in normal conversation, and we say them together. We proclaim them as, this is, these are the things that we believe. This is how we see the future of the world. This is where we think things are heading. This is what we, this is what we hope in and we long for. And we, so we sing about these things. And did you know that when you sing together as a choral group or as a, as a room full of people singing or at a concert, what happens is scientists tell us that like our, our heartbeats begin to sync up Over time, over the minutes as we sing together, and by the end of a given song or two or three, our hearts are beating as one. We are saying the same words. Essentially, we are becoming one people, one body, as the mouthpiece and the the, the body of Christ proclaiming the things that God is doing in the world. And so that's why we sing. We also gather to proclaim. Um, Rhetoric is an important thing. The sermon has always been an important thing. We preach sermons to each other all the time when we get on our little soapboxes and we, we speak it and we cheer each other on. We make message board where we, where we just make long paragraphs and we make our big argument and we love it, okay? And the Christians have always done this. The telling of the story of Christ over and over again is central to the life of the Christian because the stories that we tell are the stories that we embody. And so we have to constantly be reminding ourselves and each other um, of the story of Jesus. And so that's the story we tell. We don't gather here to simply get happy or to be encouraged a little bit or to sort of um, get strategy, strategies to make our businesses run better or, or just things like that. Like, No, we're, we're gathering to hear the story of Christ and to order our lives around it, to deconstruct the ways that we have been old-fashioned by the world and refashion ourselves in the, and, and let God do his thing. Um, and we also gather to receive communion, though we haven't done that for about 18 months, and we're probably not doing it into the new year. And I miss it, and I've noticed what happens when we don't take communion. There's more divisiveness. There's more strife. And that, that's a, a theological truth that we have figured out during COVID is that, uh, that how, how vastly important communion actually is. It's the great unifier and equalizer of us all. As we come from different backgrounds of the Christian faith and different walks and different ways of looking at everything, when you sat at the communion table, the bread and the wine in the middle, we all line up and we take it. Because we are Christians, we are brothers and sisters, that's what we do. And it burns through all of the walls that, 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 that the world is even building up to separate us, the church. Did you know, like, this is happening, the world is trying to build up walls to divide God's people into tons and tons of groups. Um, that's why we need the communion table. We all sit together. Um, and so, we have this Sunday morning gathering, we sing and we proclaim, we tell the story and we take communion That's one half. The other half is our house churches. Here's our, I'll put the graphic back up here so we can ponder this for a bit. The other is our house churches. Um, For many Christians, the in-home gathering, and I'm talking about many Christians, not just today, but throughout Christian history, the house gatherings um, that happen throughout their weeks have been integral um, because it, it completes what they lack in their other gatherings. Well, there's a lot of things we lack here. We lack the ability to really sit and have deep conversations with each other. We lack the ability to have to bounce back and forth and have ideas. We, we, we lack the ability to talk about what God is doing in each of our lives and to submit to each other. And that's what we need. Um, we're... we're God works through our everyday life. That's how God works. We tend to think that God works through our church services and that God works through our quiet times, but the fact is these things are prepping us to receive the work that God is doing throughout the rest of the week because God works in our every single day life. His work is not relegated to the religious gatherings. And so we make space to share life regularly, weekly as Christians because that's where God is working. And so we also know that God is present through Christ. And when we gather together as a people around a table, we're two or or more gathered I am there with him. Like, when we gather in this way, the Spirit of God is present with us. We are called the body of Christ. Again, the church in the city of Corinth is jealous of all the temples all around the city, and they're like, I wish we had a temple so they could know what our God is like. And Paul writes them, and goes, don't you know that your body is the temple? He's not saying your individual bodies. He's saying your collective gathering is the temple. You look at their temples to know what they think of their God. When they look at you, they will know what God is like. As you gather in this way, it's shocking. It's a shocking way for you to gather. You don't need a building, believe me. When they see what you're doing, it's not going gonna, gonna to confuse um, and interest them. And this is where, like Christ is present among us. So, so, at the table, at the house gathering, is where we slow down and we, we tend to each other around the meal, in the belief that the table is one of the primary places that Jesus reveals Himself to His followers. Every major scene where anything important happens in the Bible involves a table setting, people gathering around the table, sharing a meal, and spending an extended time uh, just drinking water and drinking wine and eating bread and talking, And, and asking what God is doing in their midst, in their city, in the empire, in their own body. What is God doing? And so the house gatherings allow for conversation, social reflection, mirroring of emotions. We can, when we see somebody hurting and we mirror our, you know, our mirror neurons begin to fire and we feel what they're feeling and they know we feel what they're feeling, that is the beginning of the healing process and God is in all of that um house gatherings also allow for a plurality of voices to speak to us women and children and neighbors and minorities and outsiders and the elderly minority versus voices that you maybe have never heard from before the perspectives of of people who have struggled with god in so many different ways and you've never heard what it's like to really struggle with god in a, in a uh in that way and this is where this happens where we can talk and be honest about our struggles I firmly believe that all Christians should be spending at least some time each week around the table in the homes of other Christians, regularly and consistently, returning to the table in a way that allows both yourself and others to be discipled through this ritual of the gathering. I'm not saying you have to do it at one of our Watermark House churches. I'm saying you need to be doing this. This is a practice that all Christians should be doing all the time. Um... I firmly believe this regularly and consistently this should be happening because discipleship happens around the table. And so this is the part where I wanna talk about discipleship a little bit and how it happens in house church gatherings. And it's a unique way that discipleship happens and I believe this is how it happened in the ancient world. Um, we tend to think of discipleship as, um, okay, I'm gonna get together with an elder in the church and we're gonna read a book together and we're gonna ask the questions on the end of each chapter and this is gonna form us somehow. Um, I think that's gonna form you less than spending time around the table with other Christians will. I really do. Um, if you're allowing yourself to be focused on what God is actually doing. The table makes possible certain postures towards each other, uh, if cultivated, that will do new things in your spiritual life. Uh, It levels the playing field. You have insecurities when you come to a table that is filled with people who are very different from you. You have some insecurities and maybe some bitterness, and like you've already prejudged everyone at the table. But you know that you came to gather with the body of Christ, not John and Jan and Bill and whatever, the body of Christ. Okay, so you leave these things at the door and you enter and you sit down and you submit to each other and you listen to each other. And as you listen to each other, there's nothing that needs to be done. You're present. You're here with Jesus. That's how you need to view this. I'm gathering with Jesus. I'm at the table with Christ. His body is here. And so this is a time for learning. This is a time for listening and paying attention and and, and and sensing what God is doing. When we hear what God is actually doing in the lives of others at the table, what happens is we naturally begin to like reflect on our own lives. When we hear, as people talk about, I was here and I've been struggling, but God has been doing this thing in my life, and I'm I'm really surprised by it. And as you begin to unpack that, the people at the table who are listening begin to realize that God is possibly doing the same thing in your life. And that perhaps God is taking you all in one particular direction. Normally, all we hear is, here's what the Bible says, uh, and then we try somehow to figure out what it means for our lives. And we probably, here's what it says, and I'm gonna do it. And that's the end of our discipleship, where we come up with a new, way, new list of things to do. Um, if you end your discipleship gathering by, with, with, with a whole other list of like morals to live by and a whole new list of things to go do, then you've missed the point. What you're searching for is all of the ways that God has set you free. The ways that God has formed you. And here's what I mean by that. One person may be struggling in one area of life, struggling for peace, for balance, for meaning, struggling to be more loving and less bitter, whatever. Um, And another might chime in and say, I used to be there and I struggled with all of these same things, but here's what God did in my life to bring me along. And they offer this divine wisdom that they have gleaned from it. They've learned that they've got maybe from some theologian or something they've read or the scriptures or the text. um, And they share this divine wisdom that is exactly what God has for this person. And you're observing this whole exchange, and as you're witnessing this, you may realize through witnessing this exchange that that indeed this dynamic is actually happening in your own life as well. And you've been absolutely blind to it. And suddenly you're filled with joy, realizing that God is present and God's been working in your life. There is a way that we approach the table. We have to understand that we are gathering not to have a meal with our friends, although we are, and it's wonderful we need to imagine that we're gathering to have a meal with Jesus. As we gather as the body of Christ, I think we take this language for granted so often, but if we have the mindset that we're sitting at the table with Jesus, we are ready to receive whatever God is doing. So there's, these are not, you know, these are not, these house churches, these are not places where we're here to teach. That's not, this is a power-free zone, okay? Nobody has the power We've begun calling our house church leaders hosts, okay? So you don't have to look at them and they don't have to feel like they have to lead you. Like, so they can be in this with you. Um, there's no power at the table. No one's got all the knowledge that they want to disperse to the people. Once in a while, I'll join you and the elders will join you at the house churches as well, but I don't want this to be from a place of power. I want it to be from like, I want to learn from you as well. You all have things that God has brought to your attention that he has not brought to mine. We need to submit to each other in these ways. And so, these are not places where we teach. These are places where we learn and discern. There, uh, uh, there, there's, there's no one with power except for the Spirit who is presence. The host needs to get out of the way. The leaders get out of the way. The one with all the knowledge at the table, if you're the Bible scholar at the group, don't get in the way. Don't do it. Don't put your hands on the wheel and guide the conversation where you can impress people with your words. Don't do it. Allow Christ to lead. Anchoring yourselves in practices like these, uh, these gatherings, um, and returning to these things over and over, these things shape us over time, and this is the role of liturgy in our lives uh, to shape us. Okay, let me talk about this for a second. My, me and my wife, we love old houses. We've never lived in a house built after 1926. We love, love old houses. I'm a history guy. She's an interior designer. Like. And so, like old houses have everything we want. And so, several times we've we've bought old houses and we've fixed them all up. We move. We we buy like this completely abandoned, just crap hole, and we just move in. Um, and we kind of like walk like this for a few days as we clean it up and get there. Um, and then we begin to work on it. And like over five, six, seven years, we'll fix it all up and make it beautiful. Um, and we love it. And then. My, my wife wants another project. And so we, we sell it and do it again. Um, it's, it's just bringing something dead that's about to be torn down uh, back to life is wonderful. And so this is what we love to do. However, um, <clears throat> different things happen. You learn a lot about houses and nature and money and all kinds of weird stuff and, and rodents. <laughs> um, and we, uh, we have a cat now, by the way. Uh, kind of last year because of the rodent thing. Um, he, he works for us. He's not my cat. He's my employee. So one day I walk into the bathroom, and, and, and there's this little drip dripping into the shower. And I'm like, from the ceiling, and it's raining. And I'm like, oh, interesting. And it's just look, once in a while. It's not a big deal, right? You can ignore that. It's just a little drip. And so weeks go by, and <clears throat> we went on vacation. We came back from vacation. I go, back, I go in the back bathroom, and the ceiling is on the floor. And all the fluffy stuff pink, it's all on the floor, and it's all over the bathroom, it's just the whole ceiling, and there's rafters, and there's birds, and it's just a mess, because old houses have open attics, and um, and I learned something that day, that the trajectory of your house, like the rot happens in the in-between spaces, the, 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 the not noticeable things, you'll get little hints, little pieces here and there, they're like, something's wrong, it's got to be fixed, but like, You don't really pay a lot of attention to it, but this is what actually forms the future of your house. It it has the potential to just ruin the whole thing and cost you all the money. Um, But this is how formation happens, and the spaces in between in the background. It's happening in the background, and you never notice it, or you think it's nothing, but this is how for spiritual formation happens. And often, me, like all of you, when attempting to have a time of, like, focused daily prayer and meditation and reading on the things of God, I will walk away with this thought, like, was that even worth it? Did that even do anything? Like, I read through it. I'm, I'm, I'm Shut up, kids. I'm reading my Bible. You know what I mean? Like, you're, like, and for some reason, it's not connecting with me. Uh, and, and so, like, you're, you're trying so hard to get something out of it, but there's distraction and phone calls and Reddit and like all these things that you're just, you can't focus and so you spend an hour and you feel like you wasted your time and you tried to pray and it was a terrible prayer and you finish, you're like, I don't know, that was pointless. And you move throughout your day, you're like, I don't think I even got anything out of this. This isn't doing anything for me. Or you go to the house church and it's just kind of like blah and you don't don't get anything out of it, you think, and and you move on and you just walk away from the whole thing um, because you don't really feel like you, you, you got anything out of it? it, it was, this, was anything accomplished in my time at all this morning or this evening? And here's the answer. While I can't pinpoint oftentimes what this has done for my life in that particular morning, I shudder to think what, have happened, what, what I would have become had I not continued the practice for the last 20 years. I can't help but think that it has these little bits and pieces have formed me. And kept me in a trajectory that, and I've had some really dark times. And I can't imagine how much darker it would have been had I not had the ecclesial practices of the church. Had I not returned to the gathering and the reading and the prayer and the meditations and the, the meal and the table and communion I can't imagine what it would have been like had I not gathered these things. Who knows what I would have been able to avoid or repel over these many years because I've been shaped by these things. And here's, and here's what I want you to understand. CNN and Fox and Facebook and Twitter and YouTube, they get so much more time with you. They get so much time with you. And it's focused and it's curated to maximize the time that you spend together, which is obvious, oftentimes hours a day. And they develop these extensive AI algorithms to really take, make the best use of that time to form you into what they want you to be. And this service here can't compete with that. And it's not meant to. It's not designed to. This gathering is meant to push you and encourage you into even more gatherings. It's to bring you, yeah, to its place of repentance and communion and all that. But like, in order to train and form us, they're training you all day to become good consumers, and good Americans. Um, that's what they're doing. You have to have some practices to counter all of this, to remain the mindset of God's people. I mean, this is the dripping water making its way through the interior walls, breaking the whole thing apart. It's the constant drip, drip, drip coming from everywhere else. And so you have to do the constant maintenance. The water leaks are getting in. I'm gonna go past the roof again. I need to gather with my brothers and sisters. Um, we gather to put it back on top. The, the, the Christian cannot possibly resist the kind of assimilating force on his or her own, armed with 45-minute sermons every week. You need a lot more help than that. The good news is that the church has always had the tools to combat the, the the formation of God's people into becoming good Romans or Gauls or Germans or Brits or Chinese citizens or American patriots. The Bible has always been equipping us with the means to avoid these things, with everything in us. We are here to become kingdom people. Our king is Jesus. We will look nothing like any other leader than Jesus. This is only all we will ever focus on. That's the good news. The patterns and the practices that keep us on the path towards being formed by Christ instead of Western society are the spiritual disciplines. And so liturgy and spiritual disciplines are about disrupting the chain of pagan religion that is flowing through our lives like water through the walls of our old houses. Um, and, And we have to find ways to constantly be patching these things. And so Watermark Church, in an attempt to provide this sort of training ground for the practices of the Christian life, I don't want you to just be a successful, like have a successful journey towards Christ while you're here. I want to equip you to take it with you wherever you're going to go, because you're all nomadic. That's what I've come to find. All of you will leave one day. You'll, you'll move, you'll, like, you'll get a job offer, you'll die. I don't know, like things are gonna happen. Like you're all gonna move on. And I want to equip you for much more than just your time here. Um, I, I want you to practice these things now throughout your life and keep them going. So in an attempt to provide for the training ground, for, for the practices of your life, um, we do run some of these official sort of what we call house, watermark house churches. Um, that are overseen by the elders and serve as sort of this training ground to, for this type of practice. We're not hierarchical church. We, we make no requirements that everyone here must, must join a house church and must go every single week or you're out. There's none of that. Um, religion cannot be coerced. I'm inviting, you, I'm inviting you into the ancient practices of the church so that you can see that the things they did for the early church fathers to make them stand against the wiles of the evil in the world can work for you too. They're, they're open. They're possible to you they're 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 accessible to you. And so these are merely training grounds to help create a Christiform life. And the more Christiform humans there are, the more both creation and humanity will flourish. The world doesn't need more honestly the world doesn't doesn't need more like what do we call oh man adjective christians. Conservative Christians, progressive Christians, liberal Christians, these Christians, those Christians. The world doesn't need more like adjective Christians. What the world needs is, is Christians that look like Christ, that are formed by Christ, that are Christ like, that move through the world as Jesus moved through the world, that think as he thought, who look at the world as he looked at the world, and is not even interested in taking part in, 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 uh, in the games the world is playing to lift up each other and themselves. Jesus is at the bottom washing the feet of the people we're ignoring. He's in the prisons, wrapping his arms around the people that we have neglected. This is where Jesus is. He's in the house church gatherings. I know we want the lights and the fog and the lasers and all the big, jumpy, happy, clappy thing and the, and the one-handed, right, like, spin thing. Um, <laughs> like, we want all of this. Sorry. Um, we want all of this, but that's not really where Jesus has said he will be. Like, yeah, the Spirit's there and all that. Yeah, that's fine. But, like, Jesus was very clear. I'm with the poor, the naked, the hungry, the prisoned. like, that's where I'm at. Yeah. Um, and so what we need is more Christ-like people. And let me tell you, I, I honestly believe that the more humans who look and act and move through the world like Jesus did, the better the world will become. Mm-hmm. I really do believe this. I, think, I do think the church is the hope of the world. Yeah. But until the church is churning out people to look like Christ its work is not going to get done. So my hope is actually that those who don't have a regular communal meals here, if you don't gather regularly with other Christians... in their house in your house in a park at a restaurant whatever and, and have some don't, do, don't go to a restaurant in a house and, and have like serious conversations and allow God to do his work if you don't I'm encouraging you to do this I'm inviting you into this um, I, I, I hope that this will become so ingrained in the rhythms of your life that it becomes an integral part of your Christian life that you look at it the same way you look at the Sunday gathering um, that it will just become a normal part of your posture and your culture um, the people around your table you just picture them always there the invitations are always open and the future of the church in America I want, to be, I want to be totally honest with you. The future of the church in America is not big. It's small. The church is getting smaller. I think the amount of Christians in the world is growing, yes, but the, the church is and needs to get smaller so that we can see each other and be present. I know we want these idolatrous sort of bastions of luck. Look what we built. God's not in that. God is building something. He's inviting you to the table to take part in it so that we can be formed by Christ, not the empires into which we are born. And so, I invite you to find a house church um, or to invite people to your table. Um, we will be in the new year adding some more house churches. They'll come from um, the people that are attending our house churches now. Um, but I wanna be clear, like. You don't have to come to a watermark house church. I, I don't want this to be about us. I never did. I, I, I want you to live a life that, that encompasses the ancient Christian way, the spiritual disciplines, the liturgies, the prayer, the meals, communion, all of it. It all needs to be a part of it. And so I'm encouraging you to do that. If you are interested in just getting a couple of people around your table and just sort of trying this thing out and, and you want a guide to that, email me. I'll send you a guide to help you work through that. Um, but I do hope you'll check out our house churches and get involved in that. Um, And so I'm gonna close us in a word of prayer, and then uh, we're gonna stand and do the Lord's Prayer together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. I pray that you would be um, very present with us as we gather in our homes. I pray that um, in this way, you would fashion us into your people. You would begin to mend the bridges that have been burned, that you would begin to mend the broken ways that we look at each other. That we would go into this sort of with our hearts open, um, allowing you to bind us together as one people, like a, like a branch being grafted into a tree it does not belong to. Bind us together and, and make it flourish and grow. Thank you, Father. In your name. Amen. All right, so let's stand. I wanted to let you know, um, I'm going on vacation today, leaving today, so, uh, but if you email me or the elders, you'll still get replies. There'll be people checking stuff and responding, um, and we've got, we've got good speakers lined up for you. We've got a pastor, we've got a theology professor. It's going to be great. I'm going to see some family I haven't seen in a very, very long time, and I'm very, very excited about it. Okay, so um, let's do the Lord's Prayer together, and then I want to encourage you, stick around, meet some house church leaders, and, and meet some people, and uh, yeah, let's do this. So um, meet some house church leaders. No, some of these uh, these house churches actually have online gatherings too, Zoom meetings, so whatever you're comfortable with. Um, Meet them. Grace and peace. Love you all. Have an amazing week.